Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia Apostle, a fat professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against weight stigma, diet culture, fat phobia, ableism, racism, etc. You can get more Fat Joy goodness, including how you can support the podcast through my newsletter at fatjoy.substack.com. And for episode transcripts, book reviews, and show notes, head to the Fat Joy website at fatjoy.life. I am so glad you're here. Enjoy this episode. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. I'm Sophia and I have Jeanette Thompson-Wesson here with me today. Hi, Jeanette. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm very excited. I found out about you as I find out about everyone through the socials, through Instagram, where you are the mindset nutritionist. And I was like, your content is so great, so informative. And then I think I reached out to you and we're, and it was like, Oh yeah, let's, let's connect. Let's get you on the podcast. And then I think the week later I was listening to, um, Dr. Asher Larmy's podcast about they did a three part series on the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, horrific guidelines. And you're on one of the episodes. I was like, Oh, I feel I had one of those like my worlds are colliding moment. And it was so neat. <laughs> yeah, me and me and Ash both talk a lot. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I'm very very lucky to have a very wonderful community in the anti diet space. I've made such amazing friends. Like you, I'm sure you've experienced that as well in the community. It's so lovely. It is. I was going to say one of the best parts of doing this that I don't think I had quite mm, anticipated would be such a beautiful benefit is the creation of fat community, which I've never had before. No, I didn't have it before being on social media, even in the way that I have been. And it's just been so lovely and sharing the your experiences. You just don't feel as alone. And that's what I really like about what I do on my Instagram account is to kind of, when something comes up in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going to share that because I know I'm not going to be alone in these thoughts as well. Um, and I think that's really important like for everybody. We need that fat community. We do. Well, I think, I think all the time about how, you know, systemic oppressions, all the varieties of them, which there are way too many, but the, the plethora, plethora of oppressions are designed to keep us separate and alone and othered and also othering ourselves because we think, and then shaming, feeling shame about it, which keeps us more mm -hmm. othered. I, and it's like, we're just floating around alone thinking we're the only ones that feels this way. And you just and it feels so stuck and lonely and it's a really horrible place to be in. I think if I could scoop every single fat person up and put the, them into like a fat container and be like we can look after each other, it's fine. Like us fat people can teach each other stuff like fat vanity and how to actually enjoy your body and you know, come here. I <laughs> love you all. Well, the feeling amongst me and my friends is that no one's going to have any money for retirement. So we're planning on a commune. So perhaps it should be a fat friendly commune. 
<laughs> but you you say that this was a conversation that I've had with um, Asher a few times, and it was before they actually moved up to Scotland. And they did actually end up moving to Scotland and was like, right, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm starting the commune. Like, come on. <laughs> I'm here already. I'm waiting for you all. Oh, people are going to start showing up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> here I come, Asher. I'm coming with my suitcase. Yeah, it's so true. It is so beautiful. And then we get to talk and get to know each other and share that with everyone who's listening too. So they get to be, all of you who are listening get to be part of this fat community. And it's just uh, such a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is. Yeah. So Jeanette, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Who am I? Um, I feel like a very complicated human being right now. Um, <laughs> very complicated. Um, so I'm Jeanette. I am a nutritionist. Um, I always knew I wanted to do something with food when I was younger. Um, I always wanted to be a chef. And then I did work experience and realized that I really didn't want to be a chef because I'm a very much a people person. I like chatting to people, like being around people when it felt very solitary. Um, so I went, I actually wanted to become a dietitian. Um, and interestingly, I did great with my first bit of schooling, last bit of schooling, completely flunked it, did a really bad job. So I had to become a nutritionist rather than a dietitian because I could get into university with my grades, um, which was fine because then my I did still had a pathway because I could still do my master's after that. But when I got to the end of my nutrition degree, um, interestingly, um, I filled out a teaching application form as well as the master's application form for dietetics. And one of the big reasons why I didn't actually apply for dietetics in the end was because I can't do it just yet because I'm not in a small enough body. Yeah. So when I get there eventually, when I've lost enough weight um, and when I look a certain way, Maybe I've worked out my style and I can, you know, you know, I really wanted to perform to body ideals and beauty ideals and, you know, everything that you see from quite, you know, big names in like nutrition and dietetics and stuff. And I was like, when I've worked that all out, I can come back to it. But for now, I'll go do the teaching until I've worked that all out, until I can lose the weight and kind of keep it off. So I went and did um, teaching. So I taught um, secondary school kids um, how to cook, um, nutrition, eating, and loads of different things. And then I ended up basically on this kind of massive, huge, like body positivity journey, which just developed into fat liberation and learn about intuitive eating and put that into like my own personal journey. And yeah, it kind of everything flourished from them. But you know, when you have this like light bulb moment, that was me, light bulb moment and everything just went from there. It was just so much better. Wow. And was that light bulb moment, that was the, when body positivity became fat liberation or was it just the, was it even like, oh, there's this thing called body positivity? It was that, it was that. And also discovering health at every size. Um, and I remember looking at, and I know, I know we're very, you know, I'm very against Lindo and what everything that has happened with Lindo, but for them, and this is, that's also a very interesting conversation. Their work was very much a gateway 
into this space for me and learning about weight science through their work and through their literature was a gateway which i think at the time was a very big thing did you experience that as well i did yeah for me it was virgie tovar and jess baker those two books and then shortly after shrill shrill with by um uh lindy west uh, those books, especially Jess and Virgie's, were like, what? Like, this is a thing. I like, I never in my wildest imaginings ever conceived that it was okay to be fat. Like, it blew, I, I don't, I think I, yeah, I, I think I came and went from those books like back and forth because I would read a chapter and be like, no, this can't be true. And then, oh, hang on, let me read another chapter. It was very, very challenging because I was challenging my whole like world belief or what I'd been taught, what I knew. It was so uncomfortable, but it felt there was like a truth that I could feel also through my whole body, right? Yeah. And that's exactly, I think I went, I went kind of, my brain just went through the science. Um. And it was exactly that, you know, I felt it was uncomfortable because I had been dieting for a long time. I'd done all the, you know, the really temp like stereotypical things. Like I remember doing slim fast, we did slimming world, which is very much like Weight Watchers and I'd done calorie counting, you know, tried so many different things. And even though I was a new, and this is what I always come back to, even though I was a nutritionist, I always knew the things that I was doing was not good for my body. Scientifically, I knew that. I knew that replacing my meals with a slim fast drink wasn't honoring me. I could feel that in my body. I could feel that in the way that my brain was working. It made me feel utterly miserable. And scientifically, nutrition, nutrition science wise, I knew that even though they listed a whole load of like nutrition on the back of it, I could look at that and be like, this, that's still not going to be enough for me. You know, I'm not going to be thriving on this. But that anti-fatness that I had, where I was like, I'm a nutritionist. I have to be in a small body. Otherwise, no one's ever going to take me seriously because I'm not in Like, why would you listen to a fat nutritionist? You know, that's that's what my brain was constantly doing all the time. Why would anyone listen to me? And why could no one's going to listen to me to take advice? You know, I couldn't go into all these different things because I was still waiting for that small body. And then reading the weight science and me going, what? What? It, like, okay, this is these are things that I knew, but. It was just so validated, like, and almost like this massive sigh of relief, but also that discomfort that was in there as well of trying to challenge all of that and then going through that as well, like heading towards fat liberation. I think one of the really big tricky things as well is trying to separate yourself from your health as well. And because I was very like being a nutritionist, you know, that morality in regards to health was so intrinsically linked. You know, my my undergraduate was all about, you know, people must be skinny. You must be. And, and at the time it was um, in the UK, they were doing a massive report. So there was this huge thing about 
everything that was going on with people being in big bodies and oh my god this it's never ending and you know, we're going to end up a hundred percent of us are going to be in large bodies and everyone's going to be dying early and all that kind of rubbish that we you know we know now and reading the the evidence we know it's very different what the evidence actually says um but having that those two like for me i think that was one of the big things as well is kind of going okay so i know all of this about weight science i understand this about from a disease point of view and how i can challenge those but then trying to remove and pull apart that health and morality and that healthism that you know health isn't an individual responsibility and I think that was a big thing for me as well in my kind of fat liberation journey, being able to pull, pull those apart. And I think that's that's a really hard thing for fat people. Yeah, for fat people. And I also will say like non-fat people as well, because I think it's so, I think the tent, it's so interesting. This, this actually literally happened to me yesterday. I joined a group coaching program because I just want some extra training and learning on how to coach groups. And the topic of you know, this um, kind of, we have to practice while we're learning because we you know we're, it's a very applied program, which is why I wanted to do it. I had a whole conversation about systemic oppression with the facilitator or the leader before I even committed to joining. He seemed very aware. He is very aware. But I probably should have like brought up diet culture specifically and anti-fatness um, because the topic he suggested that when we're in like practice mode that we as a small group, a group of seven use is wellness. And I immediately was like, oh, fuck, here we go. So I was like, all right, fat woman raising her fat arm to say, hold up. I said, I love the topic of wellness. I am here for it. Here's the thing. Part of what gets looped into wellness is um, and is, is diet culture. And that is represented by intentional weight loss and dieting and food related conversations for weight loss and ableism and healthism. And I have a strong boundary. It's a no go for me. And I could see everyone else, all the other coaches were like, Oh God. And one of them really was even said, like, I want to crawl under my chair right now. I'm like, right. I am introducing conflict. And so it, it was very interesting because like, this is the tension. It's like, I know all this stuff, just like I imagine, um, you know, other anti, I think a lot about, cause we get lots of training in one of the organizations I work with from like anti-racist educators, neurodivergent educators, where like they know all the things and they go there, they specifically go into rooms and talk to people who do not know all the things and who are often very close to all the things. And I really had like, a, a version, a lighter version, because I'm not an anti-oppression educator, but I had a lighter version of that, like, these people I respect, these people who are my peers, like, sit, I had to sit in that tension of, okay, what's going to happen now? And I feel like when you're talking about this tension between, all right, I'm a fat nutritionist, is anyone take me seriously? I'm sitting in this room going, okay, I have to draw a boundary because I do not want to spend these next months talking, hearing about people's diets, because that is not how I want to spend. That's not how I want to pay. I'm paying a lot. I don't want to pay to spend my time doing that. And 
no one knew about diet culture. It didn't register for anyone. And then so now they've got to do their own learning. I still have to figure out or I have to, we still have to have a conversation whether that limit is going to be accepted or not. Because for a lot of them, it was like, well, isn't this a preference that to not talk about that? I'm like, no, we don't know who in the room has an eating disorder or disordered eating. We don't know about invisible disabilities right now. We're on Zoom. I could be in a chair. You don't know, like a wheelchair. You don't know. Um, anyway, it was just like, I was what you're, like these tension points that show up for fat people. It's like ever present and surprising, right? It's the surprise of it. So that tension you described and where it held you back, I really felt, you know, I really felt when you said that because um, fi- me of, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago would have probably just dropped the group workshop and been like, I just, I just can't, you know, and never said anything. So how did you, how did you work through that tension? What happened? It's, um, I think it was a lot to do with my own personal journey. Definitely finding that kind of fat community. And uh, when I started my Instagram account up originally, it was very kind of very typical anti-diet nutritionist because that's what I've been seeing on like Instagram of how to put myself out there and stuff. And it wasn't until I've been doing so much work on my own personal journey in regards to pulling apart that health and that morality and combat combating a lot of, a hell of a lot of ableism in my mind and a hell of a lot of healthism and nutrition, you know, nutritionism and reductionist nutrition, you know, really combating those in my brain because those were all very normal in my mind up until that stage. And it's normal for all of us. It shouldn't be normal, but it's normal for us, all of us, until we start doing that work. And it's all really uncomfortable work. And it took me a while and I will, it's all work that I'll, you know, we all continue to do anyway, isn't it? But it wasn't until I started doing that. And then I started kind of thinking like, God, like, actually, when I kind of, there was a couple of, actually, there was a couple of, there was another nutritionist at the same time who started up at the same time as me. And the main difference between me and her was that she was in a straight size body. Oh, and she was anti-diet? anti-diet but straight size got it great size opened up her clinic at a very similar time to me and was automatically doing so much better i yeah and i it wasn't until actually it was a really early conversation i had with um, nicola salmon actually and um she's she was the one that pointed out to me she was the one that said um fat fat business owners are always going to find it so much more difficult and fat business owners are always going to have to work so much harder. And she said also in this space, in this, you know, anti-diet space, which it likes to view itself as very inclusive and quite intersectional. And it kind of appears on the front as that, but when you start kind of peeling back those layers, um, there's a lot of people taking up a lot of space that have a lot of privilege, um, which I, I found quite tricky and quite difficult. And, you know, I've tried to navigate that, um, as best I can, but it's something that I still find very, very challenging, not in the way that I want to change my body. I'm in my own personal like space of, I really, 
I really have a lot of fat vanity. Like I had a boudoir like photo shoot the other week and I am obsessed with these photos. Oh my God. I she sent them to me and all I've got all of these amazing photos of my bum. I don't know what I'm gonna do with them. The husband like <laughs> my husband's like, I'll have one there and then <laughs> and I was kind of like I don't think I can do that to our visitors or anyone. Or think of the children, you know. And and he, he's just like, well, they see your bum anyway. Yeah. Do they really want to see it all the time on the wall? <laughs> like, how about my parents? But I'm still loving them. I love these photos. And so I'm in a pace of like almost fat vanity. And I'm I'm literally at this stage of um, yeah, look at my body. Like I know this is uncomfortable to you because I'm not part of beauty standards. I'm not the thin ideal. So yeah, look at me. And you probably will find me really hot because I am really hot, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so my own personal journey, I feel fine. I wouldn't change anything about myself. Um, I know I have a lot of body privilege that comes with me being able to say that and do that as well. I'm a mid-fat, um, able-bodied, um, woman, cisgendered, you know, I have a whole load of privilege to be able to say that I've got to that space. It's much easier for me to get there than other people. Um, but yeah, um, in regards to, because I went on a massive tangent there about my, I was, I was totally distracted by pictures of my bum. I know, I was just going to say, let's go back to the boudoir photo shoot. I'll have to show you some photos, won't I? <laughs> We'll share them with all the listeners. Oh, well, they're already on my Instagram grid. How have I not seen them? Okay, I'm gonna have to double check. I must. This is where the Instagram algorithm pisses me off because I'm like, show me the people I follow. Show me everything from the people I follow. I'm totally feeling that right now. But yeah, so I wouldn't change anything about myself. And um, but then, what do I do with a business to try and make myself more successful? Um, if I'm not if I don't want to change myself and I don't feel the need to change myself and, you know, it's not that my body is wrong. My body's never wrong. It's never been wrong. It's society and the messaging that's there that's speaking to everyone else around. And it's not everyone else's fault. You know, people have their own anti-fat bias and it's trying to work out ways to kind of get through that as much as possible. But, Maybe photos of my bum on my grid might be the way forward. <laughs> I mean, that's a good marketing strategy. <laughs> well, it's so interesting because I think this is where I see a lot of fat business owners really targeting the niche of other fat people. You know, because there, there is, I mean, I remember working at a hiking and outdoor equipment store and feeling like, oh gosh, is this person not wanting me as a salesperson because I'm fat and what on earth would I know about the latest in gear and, you know, the best pants to wear if you're doing a through hike of the Appalachian, you know, like it was very, um, I was really aware of it in jobs that I had that there were assumptions about what you had to look like to do this thing. Like, here's what your body must look like to be an outdoorsy person. And my body did not look like that. You know? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate. It's really frustrating. And yeah, I wish we could solve it, but I don't, I think this is the problem. Yeah, you're right. You know, heading towards kind of 
fat people working with fat people and that's why i like the community like my boudoir and um, photo shoots um she's a fat woman herself and i love that you know i think i'm much more likely now to seek out other people who are also fat to be spending my money with or you know much more likely you know the same as I, i'd rather be spending my money with someone who is black you know neurodivergent disabled i'd much rather be spending my money there and that's where i put my kind of thoughts and efforts into my spending now i think that's another big thing that kind of changed along with my own fat liberation journey because if we're not working on all of those inter intersections and challenging you know challenging ourselves constantly with those then we're not helping all fat people because all fat people can cover every single intersection that there is and we want to be lifting everybody up including our most um well no not our most our least privileged so um i think that it's kind of changed my spending habits um not that i have much money to spend but that's something we were going to talk about anyway yes it is it is well and i just wanted to give a shout out because angel austin who i have interviewed on this podcast before and actually i think i feel like angel might have been episode five it was really early on when i started last fall Angel has just released something called Fat Gig, and I'll include the link in the show notes. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's basically, hey, if you're looking for a job to be done, why don't you hire someone who's in a marginalized body? Because we know people, right? Yeah, because we know people in marginalized bodies get paid less, don't get hired, weight is not protected, you can get fired for being fat. Like, there's just so, there are so many barriers. So, I've got, I've, I'm actually, I've got to take a look. I've got a note to take a look on my to-do list for this week because I want to hire someone. I want to build up my website a little more. So I'm like, okay, well, why wouldn't I, if I'm going to go to like Upwork, why would I do that when I can go to Fat Gig and hire someone who is fat, probably has other intersectionalities and I can like, yeah, put my money there and support the people, like the people I want to support. Exactly. Much better to put our money that way. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. So I'll link to Fat Gig. So everyone listening, you need stuff done. Check out Fat Gig. So I feel like we already kind of addressed what is always my second question, which is what is your relationship to the word fat? I feel like we talked through that beautifully. So yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you, Jeanette, um, was that I got, I think it was a question. I don't forget which of my socials it was on, but it was, or maybe it was a comment on a post, but basically this idea of intuitive, like the question, the person, I wish, uh, see, I, I poor planning. I should have pulled it up, but basically this person was saying, Hey, I want to follow an intuitive eating lifestyle. I'm anti-diet. Like I really want to do things differently with my relationship to the food, to food. And I am on a very tight fixed income and cost of living is go up, is going up. Like how, how do I do that? And what I heard in that question is so clear. It's like, I think about this all the time where I'm like, I don't want to live in late stage capitalism, but I have a mortgage. And it's like this, this tension that exists between the reality of our situation and what we're also, how we're also trying to often divest from the realities of oppression. So, I, so I was like, Hey, Jeanette, you want to talk about this big, easy topic? And you said, yes. So here we are. <laughs> so, Ah, where do we even start to pull the thread of that? Well, I think a good place to start is, is that there's been research that shows that 
if you are if you are deprived or you have been you know in a, in you know in the past been stuck in kind of poverty for whatever reason then you are much more likely to um, not be an intuitive eater yourself they've done a lot of work in um, teenagers and trying to find that out as well so teenagers especially um, if they spend their teen years um, basically in food deserts food insecurity and um, that kind of thing then they're less likely to be like intuitive eaters on the intuitive eating scale um so that kind of makes everything sound really simple so it makes it sound like it's completely inaccessible and it's it's a big no and this is these are conversations i had quite early on as well in my kind of work with intuitive eating as a professional it's very much like okay so how access how accessible is intuitive eating across the financial range we know it's very easy financially for people who are wealthy probably kind of in that middle area but that kind of lower area is it and then when you think about um you know one of the, one of the principles is um, being able to give yourself unconditional permission to eat which usually people when they're first starting off their journey it, it feels like it sounds like we're saying to people just eat whatever you want whenever you want eat it all just eat it all eat it all eat it all and then that becomes quite daunting because how do you keep up with being well eating it all and then that's when it becomes really really inaccessible to people hello lovely Sophia here popping into this episode to let you know that I've been slowly and steadily creating workshops connected to fat joy. If that intrigues you, if you've been thinking that you'd like a safe space to explore the influence that diet culture and anti-fatness have had in your life, if you've been craving community support and empathy, if you'd like to learn more about these workshops, become a subscriber to my Fat Joy newsletter on Substack because that's where I'm going to be sharing all the details about the workshops. You can head to fatjoy.substack.com to become a subscriber for free. And if you'd like to support me making the podcast so I can keep doing it, you can become a subscriber for $5 a month. Thank you. And that was the question that I had for a while that I sat with for a while, which was maybe intuitive eating isn't actually accessible. Maybe it isn't. And the research says that it possibly isn't accessible as well for, for people who do experience that. So people who have, people who experience food insecurity, it, you psychologically have a very similar um reaction to those food deserts and that food insecurity than what you do with dieting because it's still deprivation from your diet you're still not being able to allow yourself to have foods because okay dieting you'll be you're telling yourself but when you don't have enough money you just can't get food it's not accessible to you and you can't get the range of food or the frequency of food so that's why you get your food insecurity so you had very similar that's why a lot of people who um, do experience food insecurity for whatever reason, especially in their childhood, they're at a increased risk of then developing like um, disordered eating or eating disorders as they grow older as well. Um, so it's, 
but then I then when I started thinking about that more, then I just thought, but are we just really boiling it down to make it seem very kind of simple when this conversation is so much more vast than no, it's not accessible for people who don't have enough money. I believe it is accessible, but as long as we're thinking about it across the whole of your life, and this is what I find with intuitive eating, people will kind of do their intuitive eating journey and they think it's just all about their food and their relationship with their food. And actually it has so much of a profound impact on the whole of their life. Yeah. And Jeanette, could you, just in case, just as a little like refresher for people, do you mind just sharing like basic principles of intuitive eating? So I think that'll provide a really great context for where you're about to go. Yeah. So intuitive eating, you have like 10 principles. I'm probably not going to be able to reel them off off the top of my head, but generally wise, it's rejecting diet mentality. It's honoring your hunger and your fullness. It's then moving on to doing you know, being able to give yourself unconditional permission to eat, which is really challenging, like fear foods and, you know, not hiding foods or doing secret eating, you know, the kind of trying to eat what you can. It's very loaded. Uh, It's quite a difficult one for a lot of people to do. That was a hard one for me. Yeah. Chips. It took me probably 15 years to be able to just have chips in the house and they just get to be in the house because it was a secret and a fear food for me. Oh yeah. And and I think that's really, really common. And people think that intuitive eating can be like a, like done, I'm sorted. I've got my certificate for intuitive eating and there's, it's, it's something that you, it's a tool that you have for life. Basically you learn these ways of being able to kind of work through these foods. Um, and as they come up as well, because food still come up for me where I'm like, oh my God, this is, I haven't had this in years. And I'll go through moments of being like, oh my God, I'm just going to eat this food. And, and it's using the same tools again to be able to become more intuitive when it comes to their food. So it is basically intuitive eating is one big tool to be able to eat in a way that honors your body, that makes you feel, you know, actually okay in your body rather than not feeling okay, not feeling kind of like, you know, and having a better relationship with your body and with your food and movement comes into it as well. And so, yeah. So when we, when we're talking about intuitive eating and the accessibility to intuitive eating, we have a much wider conversation in regards to, okay, so why are we doing intuitive eating in the first place? Like what brings people into doing intuitive eating? And most of the time people don't want to do dieting. People feel like they're dieting because of health reasons. I need to lose weight because of my health. I need to diet because of my health, you know, as well as obviously how we look. But people try and reject that when they're doing the work behind rejecting diet and diet mentality, which you can do. You know, that's financially free. There's loads of books that you can get for intuitive eating from secondhand shops. There's loads of information online that you can get as well. But then it's moving into the food side of things. So what do we do? And the the thing that we do is we, I think it's an acceptance we sometimes have to have, and that's easier said than done. An acceptance of, okay, I might not be able to all the time commit to intuitive eating. There's going to be moments in my life that I'm not going to be able to be an intuitive eater. And it's something that I've spoken to really recently with my um, 
with my group coaching is um, like health stacking. I like to call it health stacking and it's going okay. So I'm in this moment of not being able to afford food right now. I, fun foods I'd love to have, um, but I can't have them because they're not accessible. They're too, they're too expensive for me right now. Knowing that this is probably going to make things difficult for you later on because of your relationship with food is going to be changed. You know, that's, it's hard. It's horrible. Um, but having acceptance and compassion because you're in a situation where you can't change that. You know, our socioeconomics are very, very difficult to change. Um, so giving yourself that compassion, knowing that you can come back to feeding intuitive eating into your life. And it's not that you stop being an intuitive eater, like you're not stopping that because this isn't a diet when we're doing intuitive eating. And I think that's what we think of, like, oh, I can't do it anymore. I can't afford the food, so I'm not intuitive eating anymore. Actually, no, you still are. And you still can do that. It's just thinking of things in a different way. So to explain, like, health stacking, um, your health is so much more, so much more than just how you eat and how you move. It's an, like 70% more. <laughs> oh my gosh. So much more. And when you look into that, like when I first look, looked into that, I was like, almost, I was really challenged because obviously being a nutritionist, I've been in this world of nutrition is so important is Food as medicine. I was just reading about food as medicine today, which is like the newest mood movement. Sure, everything, you know, that kind of thing. And and to to be challenged with that was actually really difficult, but then also really useful because then I'm, you know, as a nutritionist, I know that food can be very impactful. I know that food can help, you know. And we can tweak and we can help symptoms. But also I know that that's only one way of supporting your health. And there's loads of other ways of being able to support your health. You know, how's your mental health right now? You know, double checking on that. Um, is there something you can do? Obviously, if you're in a financial situation, is there something you can do that is free? I'm not saying go out for, and go and have a walk and it will cure your depression because that's annoying and not true but is there something else that you can do to honor your mental health in whatever way that you feel is useful to you is there is there something that you could do if you're sleeping how is your sleep right now you know is that something you can change can you have a look at the hours that you're doing can you go to bed earlier how's your sleep setup? you know these are things that we can stack and so i say say to people okay Nutrition may not be available to you right now, and that's okay. We've been told in told in diet culture, and you know, in in the very kind of Western white world that we live in, that nutrition is so important. It's been sold to us again and again. Capitalism is like you must do this diet, you must eat this way, you have to have this supplement, spend more money on this nutrition, this 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 this. this. You don't need to do all of that. Go okay. Nutrition, I'm just going to move down our priority list, hopefully temporarily, we'll see. But I'm going to move something else up. And then when you start thinking about it in that way, you still feel as if you're honouring yourself and you're honouring your body. Um, 
And you still feel as if you're supporting your health in one way or another, whatever your health looks like to you. And I think that's the wider conversation with intuitive eating. So that's kind of where my brain went. My brain went from, oh God, maybe it's not accessible. That feels really icky to me. I really don't like that. It doesn't feel very accessible. And then sitting in that kind of, sitting in that suck for a while, and then moving on to the conversation of, but actually it's not just about intuitive eating, it's thinking about the wider person and how we can communicate that forward. It's like, okay, you don't have much money now. You can still be an intuitive eater because you're still recognizing this. You're, you're still knowing this. You've got that tool that you can pick up when you need to. Let's see what else you can do with your health to stack it. I love this so much, Jeanette. I love this idea of health stacking as a, as a tool. Cause I imagine you feel the same way in your coaching. Cause I feel like so much of my role as a coach, whether I'm doing leadership coaching or writing coaching or, you know, fat liberation coaching, whatever it is, it's when people come to us and they're stuck, they feel like there's nowhere to turn. There are no options. And that's often when they want to get some support. And what you've done with the health stacking tool is you're actually returning them back to a place of choice and hope. That is brilliant because when we can shift that energy for people and it's not like, I love how you said, I why have I never thought of this before? I loved how you said, I just wanted to like underscore it. Just because I can't intuitively eat in this moment, it does not mean that my, like my intuitive eating, eating card is revoked. Like I still am an intuitive eater because that is a skill. That is a, that is a way I live. It is a way I be. And whether I'm doing it or not, that can't be taken away. That's also beautiful and hugely so like, integral. Yeah. Because they can be caught in like, like diet mentality snatches us back sometimes. And what I find with people who go into an intuitive eating, they're, they're waiting for like their certificates. So they obviously know they're not going to get them, but they're, they're waiting for some kind of big change, which we're, we're, we're so used to, you know, you start um, a diet, you step on the scales that first week, you've lost loads of weight. It's been, oh, isn't this amazing? And then you chug along and you get your little certificates and your stickers or, you know, there's all this celebration and stuff. And with intuitive eating, you don't get that. Um, it's very gentle. It's supposed to be a long and a slow change. There's no certificates, but there's a lot of self-healing and self-knowledge. And that doesn't get lost when you have moments. And it's going to happen. Our lives are not perfect. Our lives is not set up the way that capitalism wants our lives to be set up with and, and white supremacy wants our lives to be set up with. You know, we're supposed to, we're told all these messages of how our lives are supposed to look and how we're supposed to act as people. You know, so many complicated messages and diet culture slips in all these messages of doing this and you end up falling, falling off the bandwagon and trying another diet and then falling off the bandwagon and trying another thing and trying another thing, which is exhausting in itself to keep on doing that. And that's not intuitive eating. It's going, okay. Sometimes it's even like for me, I've had moments where I've just been like, oh God, I haven't even checked in my body for a few weeks. Oh, what is going on in there? Hello, buddy. How are you? (laughs) And it's, that doesn't stop me from being intuitive eater. It's just meant that life has got in the way and that is just natural and that's okay. And this is where self-compassion comes in where you can step back and go, okay, that's normal. You know, it's fine. 
this is a, you know this is this isn't something that we achieve to be an intuitive eater it's some it's a tool it's a, it's a tool that we're using as we go through our life that helps us yeah and i also hope i tend to think of it as a tool that has now become kind of like my my soft landing place my default place and i get kicked out of it all the time like if i'm stressed or really busy or oh my gosh, health stuff, or I fight with my partner or whatever, like anything that happens in life can throw me. But like, it's like, it's, it's like where I come back to when I come back to myself, I can come back to that place. And it's not like it gets taken away or disappears. So thank you for sharing that. Cause when you just, I'd never thought of it that way. And I was like, oh my God, I feel the truth of that. And the habit stacking that we can access, choose, reprioritize the flexibility with that is brilliant. Like we can reprioritize depending on what's going on in our lives and what we also have control over because there are things we don't have control over. So why do we like try to fight so hard against it? And then we just, I mean, I, I'll speak for myself. If I feel like I have no control, I'm like, fuck it. I give up, you know, but what's actually true is I still have lots of choice. I just can't see it in the moment. So this is why I love this idea of the habit stack. Like I'm literally in my mind, or this is how geeky I am, Jeanette. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to hang up. I'm going to get out my post-it notes and I'm going to like habit stack. I'm going to do a little habit stack like diagram for myself. And I'm going to check, I'm going to put it on my desk and I'm going to like check in on it every week and be like, mm, is this still the right order? Do I need to switch something? Because I, I think like having those reminders is so important for us to like give ourselves that compassion to give ourselves that grace and there's a real honesty to what you're saying it's like hey i'm gonna look honestly at my life right now this is a bizarre week i have all these things going on okay so you know maybe this week i really focus on prioritizing my sleep and that's okay and you're still supporting your health yes yeah and whole health it, like fully yeah yeah and i think it I think that kind of way of thinking as well really helps, um, you know, some people who are neurodivergent as well as people who um, maybe in bodies that can't move for whatever reason, because, you know, we've spoken a lot about like food, you know, exercise is, is part of movement, is part of intuitive eating as well. And being able to, most dieters have <laughs> a, really poor relationship with movement and exercise um because of that all or nothing and you know, that punishment that comes with that and stuff but also you know it's being able to go okay especially like when i when i'm working with people who are in fat bodies and doing intrusive eating um exercise and movement is something that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks exploring and actually being able to give someone permission not to exercise. It's okay. It's okay not to exercise. And then not just to say it like that and end it, you know, because that's really loaded. That feels really, really difficult when you've come, when you're in a fat body that's been told you must be in a small body. And the way you get into that small body is so simple. It's so easy to do. All you've got to do is just eat a few more calories and burn some more. So you just got to go and go and hit the gym. You know, telling a fat person to release that is hard. It's not going to release it like at all. I think it feels, it feels very horrible to someone 
who's in a fat body to say to them just just don't just don't bother with exercising as if it's just as easy to release those thoughts whereas if you say to a fat person okay we we need to move movement and exercise to a different place right now and we can come back to that but at the moment it's not going to serve you to do that movement and exercise that's you know put that to one side but if we have a look at health stacking and being able to explain health stacking to someone and going, okay, you may not be moving, you may not be exercising, but also let's have you look at your health by zooming out, by have a look at that and being able to stack those things. And then also reminding that fat, fat, fat bodies move daily anyway. Um, you, you know, just moving your arms around, that's movement. Loading the dishwasher, that's movement. Anyway, that's just all, that's all stuff that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Like I constantly move when I'm sitting down, like you won't know that my foot's been tapping the whole time, but that's movement. Like that happens all the time. Um, But then also when we're talking about, you know, our our fattest bodies, you know, um, in finny fat bodies and sometimes like super fat bodies where they feel like they don't have as much mobility to be able to say to them just, you know, in this moment right now, it's, it's okay not to have that exercise. And, you know, because that's a massive worry, you know, this correlation that people have in their mind, or no, not this correlation, this connection in this mind that comes from a correlation of like health and, and weight. And, you know, you're trying to separate that whilst you're doing all of this work as well. And being able to give someone permission to, not exercise and not to worry about that exercise to give them that headspace but then also to say to them but there's other ways to be able to support your health there's other things you can be doing right now which doesn't feel as kind of worrying and anxiety driven and you know that kind of message of just just stop exercising can some put some put some people in a complete tailspin oh for sure for sure well and you know we know you know if we're living in survival mode crisis mode stressed all the time no amount of exercise is going to help us and so we're impacting our health so even just the permission to shift our beliefs to not have to exercise right now or to change for me when i i again it's it was, it was, I feel like I need a meme. It was like, I was this day's old when I first heard that, oh yeah, movement can be loading, unloading the dishwasher, standing, washing the dishes, walking upstairs. And that, the, the, it, that allowed me to let go of this little voice in the back of my mind about how much movement did you do today? Did you do something? And it's like, yeah, my office is on the third floor. I walked up and down the stairs at least 20 times, two stories. Like, okay, I've climbed some some level of stories of building. You know, and and like, I think that also has huge health I, we know, I don't think, we know that has huge health benefits. If we're not feeling shame and stress, Mm. that that does more for us yeah 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 and there's you know there's socializing socializing and list for health as well people you know when you talk through actually the list of health promoting behaviors people don't there's, there's so much we can do and literally being able which is 
but also why when we all when the whole world locked down during covid our collective health was impacted because we couldn't socialize with people and that drove our stress up higher including like the fear of covid and the different world we were living in that drove our stress up higher as well which is actually really interesting they've been doing research into um diabetes because there's been more people who have actually been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes following covid um and they're thinking that and i'm just i'm i'm just adding this because it's just a nice little bit of information that um that actually stress stress and trauma can impact your risk of developing type 2 diabetes so it's not just sugar and being fat <laughs> well, and we know diabetes doesn't cause fatness. Like people, it's like insulin resistance, which is caused by the stuff going on in your body. Like it's just, there's so, there's so much. I love this idea of bringing in all these health promoting behaviors. And like, I'm at, I can imagine you going through it with clients and being like, okay, here's a big long list. What's your stack? It's like, it's like, <laughs> cause you always hear the term um, tech stack, which is like, here are the technologies that a particular organization or company uses to get their business done. And so they literally will do it as a stack like, oh, well, our email client is like Google and then our database is our CRM is like this one. And, this one, and they just literally stack the technology. So this idea of like a health stack is just so delightful to me. And it's it's kind of important to bring in like when I, I find it like sleep is quite interesting as well, because obviously like so many things can impact sleep. As a 40 something year old woman. Yeah, yes. was on hormones for endometriosis. Let me just tell you. Exactly. And actually, when I'm speaking to a like a person who is either perimenopause or menopause, and we're talking about health stacking, my first thing will be, okay, so sleep is going to be low down on the list because um, I'm guessing you're not getting too much of that. But also, it's not something you can control as well. It's not like you can just say to yourself, oh, well, actually, I'm just going to have a good night's sleep tonight. Like, that doesn't happen. You know, same as someone who, I've got a one-year-old right now, um, who, who may sleep, who may not sleep. I can't just ignore him. So, you know, there are, you know, it, all of these kind of things is thinking about how these behaviours and these health-promoting behaviours fit into your life, your own personal life. And if it's something you can't change, that's okay. That just goes down at the moment and something else you can change or you can focus on just creeps on its way up. And that's okay. And it's going to change throughout your life. Things that, you know, one day you'll be able to sleep through the night again and your hormones will hopefully settle down. And then your sleep can come back up and creep back up in priority. And then you something else will creep down for enough reason. It's it's supposed to change, like your body's supposed to change. Right. And I think that's the beauty of this I, this tool is the flexibility of it because there is no flexibility in diet culture. It's like you must be thin. That's it. There is no flexibility. And you must be as thin as possible. Like you're, you know, it's, there's, yeah, through any means possible, as thin as possible. There's no flexibility. So we've talked about I just want to like, because again, I'm just imagining people maybe wanting to get out their own post-it notes and do a little health stack. So we talked about sleep. We've talked about intuitive eating. We've talked about movement. We've talked about social like connection. That's And for me, I, there's so much research around belonging. So it's like that feeling of being with people who 
create that sense of belonging within you, people who really know you and who you really know. I have like two people, really. So it doesn't need to just anyone listening. If you're feeling like, I don't have those people, it doesn't have to be like 30. Like it can be like quality over quantity. Quality over quantity. Thank you. Yeah. So what other ones are there, Jeanette, that people could be thinking about in terms of their health stack? Um, Socializing, we said, sleep, mental health. Oh, mental health's a big one. Yeah. And stress. And I tend to pull those apart as well. Say more about why you pull them apart. (laughs) Because you can be fine with your mental health, but be stressed as hell. Um, But you can have the both of them together. So I think it's important to talk about them individually and also being able to um, pull them apart separately allows you to stack them as well separately. And sometimes you just know that your mental health can't be a priority. But for some reason, you know, you can try, try and do something to reduce the amount of stress that you have. I mean, we know that, um, you know, in the UK, it's so difficult to get counselling on the NHS. So you have to go and do that privately. Accessibility again. Accessibility. And there are loads of people who can't afford to have therapy, which is what they actually need to help support their mental health healing, whatever that looks like for them, um, and to support them. But in their day-to-day lives, they may be able to help themselves in some way to um, either minimise or coping mechanisms with the stress, you know, and, and being able to kind of put go okay so mental health I'm gonna have to put down the priority list because I want to get a therapist and I might be able to get one soon you know it depends on money but for now I can think about those daily things to help my stress you know being able to do those kinds of things can really help and also it kind of it makes us feel like we're doing something yes again return to choice that we can do something yeah yeah because we've been told so once again that with ableism and healthism and you know all these things, we've been told that our health is our individual responsibility. You know, if I fell ill tomorrow with something, it's probably because I'm fat and I've done all the wrong things in my life. And you chose it and you did it to yourself and you must be punished. Yes. Eight and eight and eight and didn't do everything and it was my fault entirely. I should have once again hit the gym and eat eight like lettuce leaves and something, you know, slim fast again. But you know, the reality is is that it's we know it's not an individual responsibility. It's a far wider, far huger picture, which is another whole podcast in itself of what, you know, goes behind actually really behind health. A really good podcast actually to listen to that just literally pings up its mind. If you, it's the second series. You probably listened to it anyway. The second series of Ashes and um, podcast, uh, the Fat Doctor. That one delves into a lot about health and what goes on with health, the wider picture of health that diet, diet culture doesn't actually tell you. So we listed out a whole bunch of these health promoting behaviors that people can think about what is within their sphere of influence, what, and, and, you know, if anyone needs it to have permission to move things around, depending on the week, the month, what's happening in your life, that it's like this, this loosening of rigidity, which of course is what diet culture is founded on because the rigidity is impossible. So therefore buy this product 
and you'll get there. So you can just see where it's all so diabolically connected. All right. So Jeanette, that brings us to joy. I mean, you're wearing yellow. You feel very joyful. <laughs> what is your relationship to joy? How do you, what, where does, actually, you know what? Does joy fit on one of the health stacking behaviors? <gasps> I want joy on my stack. Why not? Right? Joy, delight, pleasure. <gasps> yeah. Those are health promoting behaviors. Okay. I'm putting those on my yes. stack. I yeah. think that okay. needs to go on there. That okay. needs to go on there. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your joy look like? How do you choose joy? Um, well, joy for me today was, and I needed a joyful day today. And this is, this has also been joyful. So today's been a day full of joy. Today was me eventually getting the kids dressed and out the house. Um, all three of them. And I took them to, I know this sounds really odd for people who have more than one, I don't know, any children, any child. I took them to the supermarket and I love it. Their little curious faces about food and looking and being like, what's this mummy? And can we try this please? And, and being able to, I actually really, I think from the, from someone looking in, it was chaos. <laughs> Mummy, 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 mummy. But also at the same time, I really love kind of being able to kind of be like, oh yeah, this is really interesting. Also being like, we'll put that down for another day, but we, we can get some of these if you like. So that filled me with joy. And then we went to a park and it hailed whilst we were in the play park. It hailed. And you would think that like the rest of the park cleared out. Um, and we just stayed. And the kids were so excited. There was hail. It wasn't so bad that it, was, it wasn't hurting their skin or anything, but they were just fascinated by the hail and watching the bits of hail kind of bounce off the ground and make it turn a little bit white. And just having that kind of day with them was just really, really, really lovely. I really enjoyed it. That's, that's, that's joy for me. Oh, how old are your kids? You said you have a one-year-old? Yeah, got a one-year-old, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Oh, wow. That is busy and delightful. Like all those that, that like, yeah, that just questioning, interacting, being in the world at that age. Oh, that's beautiful. Got such little curious minds and I love that so much. So um, I'm just allowing that to happen. I just, I want them to question things. I want them to have that critical thought and, be, be wanting to know more about the world around them so and that brings me joy to be able to do that with them as well as obviously I mean I think sometimes I can fall very um hard I think a lot of other parents can probably resonate I fall quite hard into just being a mum sometimes so also the things that bring me joy is getting my bum out and having photos taken of it yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love that we're ending with bums. Yay. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, Jeanette, this has been so wonderful. It's so great to chat with you and get to know you better. And um, I've loved this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. 
So each week, you get a new poem. The poem I chose for my conversation with Jeanette feels whimsical and yet also has great depth. And I feel the same way about my conversation with Jeanette. So here is the poem called How to Hold the Heavy Weight of the Now by Dana Levin. She said, you just make this gesture with your body and opened her arms as if she could barely fit them around an enormous ball. Make that shape again, she said, and so I did. Now let it change, she said, and I did. Slowly closing the space between my arms, fingertips converging until they touched. I watched my hands turn together, align pinky side to pinky side. I watched my palms open, pushing gently forward leading my body forward. I watched them let a bird go. I watched my hands make an offering. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy and on Substack at fatjoy.substack.com. And please do check out the episode notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And we'll talk again soon. <laughs>